asked the administration of the Bible College and Seminary if they would give me the privilege to start a Bible Institute ministry in the churches under the College and Seminary. And about five weeks ago, they granted me that permission. And uh, I was excited, but I also felt like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, that I was with you in meekness, weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. <laughs> and uh, I had lunch with Dr. Smith, who has really encouraged me a lot. And uh, as we were sharing this, even before the administration gave us permission, uh, Dr. Ed said, you've got to share this with Pastor Pearson. And that encouraged me because uh, Pastor Pearson's been a great encouragement and inspiration to me, and uh, I admire him a great deal, Kathy, and uh, love the church, and I figured if God leads us to do this, it would be great to uh, have their encouragement and support and the church's support, and so that encouraged me even as Dr. Ed and I met this summer, and um, and about five weeks ago, we got permission to start it. And we're calling the ministry a course in a conference where we take a 14-week uh, Bible college class that we would teach right in our college. And uh, in a conference setting, we, we share the highlights and some insights from that material. Just what we teach in college, but uh, some of the more important material and some of the things we think the churches will find more interesting. And uh, we've been putting this together. and. Uh, this is our opportunity to launch it here at Tidewater, so uh, we're really excited. And uh, Pastor Pearson has picked the topic, Christ in the Old Testament, which is one of my favorite subjects. Um, Brother Kenny led the congregation in Matthew 6.33 chorus, which is my life verse. That really encouraged me and uh, really appreciate the special music. Um, we had uh, we heard Brother Chris at the homecoming at Brother John Stumadlatis's church, uh, uh, and it was such a blessing. And I and I learned he writes a lot of uh, a lot of his own music, which I thought was fantastic. And he shared some of that with us, so that was a blessing to hear him and the and the young men again. Uh, but it's just a joy to be with you. Um, you know that there are sometimes bad news, good news jokes going around, um, like. Uh, a man comes, a uh, man is comfortably seated in his um, easy chair with his newspaper in front of him, and his wife comes in in a frantic. And uh, uh, Daniel, I hope this will never happen to you. But, he, but she comes in, uh, and, and you have to live on the West Coast for this to be possible. But, uh, uh, but uh, she uh, comes in in a, in a frazzle, and she says, oh, honey, something terrible has happened. You want the bad news first or the good news? And he says, well, give me the bad news first, and maybe the good news will cheer me up a little bit. And he said, what's the bad news? And she says, honey, I was backing up the pickup truck, and I actually accidentally uh, uh, knocked into your new Jaguar, and it went over the cliff into the Pacific Ocean. And he said, oh, he said, well, what's the good news? And she says, well, dear, on the way down, I got 50 miles to the gallon. <laughs> well, the bad news is you have to endure another book announcement. But, uh, but the good news is we have a few new books to share with you. <laughs> Um, we have some material and course schedules for the Bible College and Seminary. Love to have you look those over and take those on the back table. Uh, we did quite a bit of work on the book of Hebrews this summer, and we've put the lecture together in uh, some 
nice typewritten notes. Uh, we've put them on the table. They're just gifts. Please take those. We, we'd love to have you use them as study guides. Uh, we have, by God's grace, about 52 books on the table back there on a wide variety of subjects, and uh, we'd love to have you uh, look through those and, uh, and get those. They're available on a donation basis. Uh, we have the plan of salvation on the back so they can be used as a witnessing tool. Uh, let me also say it's just not only for a joy for me to be here, I'm so glad my wife Joyce can be here, and um, I think she's hoping to play, uh, we talked to Jimmy, we're hoping she hoping to play the Hammer Dulcimer tonight, so we'll look forward to that, and it's great to have Wendy here and David, and, um, but I'd uh, love to have you look at those books. I took the liberty of putting all of our books that we presently have in stock about 52 or 53 books in a convenient box there on the front pew. If you'd like to get the entire set, uh, we'd be happy to make them available to you at a, at a fraction of the, of the cost. And just let us know and we'll make those available to you. We have them right down there. You can just take them right with you if you want to get the entire set. Just, just uh, let us know. We can get those in your hands. Uh, but I wanted to feature just a few books, especially this morning. Um, we went on a trip to Williamsburg with our senior adults yesterday, had a blessed time, but we were looking for color. We were looking for color, and there wasn't too much of it. Uh, of course, poets write about the glories of autumn. The rest of us rake them, but, <laughs> but, but, but still had a great time. But we have some books out that tie into the autumn season. Uh, I will lift up mine eyes. Our matching devotionals, uh, morning and evening, for the month, for the weeks of October 1st through December 31st, with special focus on the holidays and things like that. Love to have you get that. Another devotional book for the autumn is called Evening, Morning, and at Noon. Three related devotional thoughts for each day from October 1st through uh, December uh, 31st um, and uh, going through the, uh, uh, the books of, um, of, of the prophets. I think you'd enjoy this. Um, with Thanksgiving coming up, I brought some extra copies of these. Thanksgiving Feast. It's a study of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. We study Psalm 103, but we also bring in, in connection with that, all kinds of thoughts as to why we should be a thankful and, and grateful people. Uh, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. always used to say that when, ad, when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. And, uh, and uh, we, uh, you know, how much more thankful each one of us would be if once we got what we wanted, we could remember how much we had wanted it. It shares a lot of thoughts on Thanksgiving. I think you would enjoy, and, uh, and it ties into the Thanksgiving season. Um, I think this book may be new. I'm not sure. We may have been able to share it last fall, but it's called Blessed Are They That Mourn, and it's a uh, monthly devotional dealing with um, how to be encouraged when tough things come into our lives. A lot of the devotionals come from the book of Job, and uh, I think you'll enjoy that if you didn't get that. Um, the fullness of time ties right into our study today. I brought a lot of copies of that, hoping you might want to get that and uh, study further uh, down the road, but uh, it ties right into our study, how Christ came in the fullness of the time, and so we brought a lot of copies. Probably the greatest chapter on uh, Bible prophecy in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53, the uh, suffering servant of the Lord. Uh, so we have a book just about that. 
talks about the marvels of prophecy called Wounded for Our Transgressions. That'll go along nicely with the study. And so we have a lot of copies of that out there. We have two new books since we've uh, had the privilege of being at Tidewater. Uh, creation and New Creation is a monthly devotional where all the devotions deal with the wonderful creation of the world or the creation of the new birth. And, uh, uh, and uh, the Lord worked it out that we were able to have a color picture on every page that would uh, match the devotional. So I, I hope that that'll enhance the value of the book. And then we just got this book off the press. This is volume two in our Life of Christ series, uh, The Word Made Flesh. And it's called Rejoicing in Hope. It's an exposition of Luke, one, five through 80, the beginning of the Christmas story with the announcement of John's birth and Jesus' birth and the chapter closing with the uh, birth of John the Baptist. And so it's an exposition of Luke 1, five through 80. Luke 1's the longest chapter in the New Testament and it's a wonderful introduction into the Christmas story. So uh, these two, these books are new and so we brought some extra copies of those and, and hope they might be a blessing and just happy to share those with you on a donation basis. As you know, it's a nonprofit a faith ministry and uh, whatever donation money comes in, we use it primarily to pay the print bills to keep the ministry going, but we also use some of it to make books available free of charge. Uh, to get them on the mission field and things like that into hospitals, prisons, things like that. So uh, love to be able to uh, share those with your help. Thank you. Being a Tidewater has been a highlight of our autumns. And uh, thank you, Pastor. And thank you for the blessing you have been, you and Kathy, to me and my family. We're talking about Christ in the Old Testament. We said during Sunday school, and if you'll follow along in these notes, we're gonna start on page four, and I hope that'll make it easier to, to follow along. And we'll tell you tonight, if you wanna get college credit for what we're doing, we'll tell you how that works. Um, but we said this morning that the theme of the entire Bible in a single sentence is the redemption of a fallen creation through the risen Christ. And one of the questions we asked was, what is the theme verse of the Bible? Now, I might be dating myself here, but I wasn't too popular, Kenny, in high school with girls, and so uh, if I don't date myself, it might not be too easy to get anybody to date me, but I found a wonderful wife anyway. <laughs> but um, I'm gonna be dating myself here, but almost, 50 years ago, and I would read this when I would be at the bus stop in Philadelphia going over to see the one who would eventually be my wife, Joyce. But I was told that Haley's Bible handbook was a great tool. And so I, I read it through carefully. And Dr. Haley made a major point in that book. I still remember it after 50 years, Kenny. He, he, he said, the theme verse of the entire Bible is Genesis 12, 3c. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Remember, Genesis 1 through 11 deals with how God deals with the nations as a whole. And then from chapter 12 of Genesis onward, he zeroes in on the Jewish people through whom would come the Messiah, who would bless all the families of the earth as his message went out from Jerusalem to all nations in the book of Acts. And I think Dr. Haley is right. 
the theme verse that gives you that break from chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis into the story of the Jews in the Old Testament, and then Messiah comes in the fullness of time in the Gospels, and then his message is taken out in Acts and deeply explained and, and uh, practiced in the churches, and then he comes back and, and, uh, and uh, brings about God's glorious conclusion in the book of Revelation. And I think Dr. Haley is right. Genesis 12, 3c is the theme verse of the entire Bible in thee, that is, in you, Abraham, and in your Jewish descendants, when Messiah comes. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3.8. He says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. And when I was reading Dr. Strong's Systematic Theology, I came across what I thought, Dr. Ed, was a fantastic summary statement of scripture. A fantastic summary statement of scripture. In fact, in the notes here, I call it a strong summary of scripture. Now, Alicia, I do that for three reasons. Number one, I think it is a very good way of summarizing the whole Bible. Number two, sometimes we preachers can drive alliteration into the ground, but this way I got three S's in the statement. And then the third reason is it came from Strong's theology, so it's a strong summary of scripture. <laughs> and here it is. The Old Testament is the life of a nation, Israel. The New Testament is the life of a man, Jesus. The Old Testament is the life of a nation. The New Testament is the life of a man. The chief purpose of the nation was to produce the man. And the chief purpose of the man was to save the world. <laughs> Isn't that a neat summary? Paul, in verses like Acts 24, 14 through 16, 26, 6 through 8, 26, 22, and 23, he tells the Jewish leaders at Rome in 28, 20, that for the hope of Israel, the hope of the resurrection of the dead through the resurrection of Messiah, for the hope of Israel, I am bound in these chains. I am a prisoner because I give the Jewish people liberating hope. Imagine. <laughs> he says all the promises of God are fulfilled through the resurrection of the Messiah who will bring about the resurrection of the nation of Israel and then Messiah's blessings will spread throughout the earth in the millennium. Indeed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, in him, Christ, all the promises of God are yea, and in him, amen. <laughs> to the glory of God by us. And so Jesus, the promised Messiah, is the wonderful fulfillment of all the hope of the Hebrew people. Now, I'll never forget, we were packed into the high school gymnasium in the early years of Pensacola Christian College. You couldn't fit nearly all the people who would come to Bible conference at the church on Rawson Lane. 
They had not yet built the 3,000-seat Dale Horton Auditorium and later the Crown Center, and so space was at a premium. They had uh, a Bible conference, and they had to get about 1,500 people in, and they chose the uh, biggest building they had on campus at the time, which was the high school gymnasium. And to save space, the faculty sat on the stage in the back, and everybody was crowded on the floor and in the bleachers. And they had a speaker uh, named Dr. Hitchcock from Heart to Heart Bible Church in Phoenix. I'll never forget this. He said, this whole Bible is so much, you can spend a lifetime studying it, hardly feel you've scratched the surface. And uh, you're here studying a lot of things to, to learn and be tested on, and you need to really work hard at it. I know that. And the Bible has so many things in it, uh, 1,189 chapters, over 31,000 verses, hundreds of really important subjects. President Theodore Roosevelt was right when he said a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a four-year degree. Of course, we in Bible colleges like to say, if that's true, then what better thing to get a four-year degree in than the Bible? <laughs> but uh, what a book. What a vast book. Thy commandment is exceeding broad. And yet, a book so vast you can spend a lifetime and only scratch the surface, it seems. Dr. Hitchcock says, I can give you the entire Bible, and you can walk out of here knowing the entire Bible if you can just memorize three simple statements. Or you'll spend the rest of your life filling in the details and developing the knowledge, but you will know what the Bible is all about. And you'll walk out of here with a tremendous working knowledge of the Bible. If you can just memorize three statements, and they're not that hard to memorize. And he says, I want you to memorize them and say them with me. And then he said to the people on this third, to his left, he said, I want you to stand to your feet. You don't have to do that. He said, I want you to stand to your feet, and I want you to repeat after me, Christ is coming. And so everybody repeated, Christ is coming. And then he went to the middle section, and he says, the second great thing you got to know if you're going to know the whole Bible is the second statement. I want you to all stand and repeat after me, Christ has come. And they all repeated, Christ has come. And then he turned to the group on his right and he said, I want you to repeat after me, Christ is coming again. And we, they repeated, Christ is coming again. And he says, if you can walk out of this, no matter how much there is in the Bible, you still need to know. He says, if you can memorize these three statements, you will walk out of here knowing what all the Bible is all about, and then the rest of your life you can just kind of be filling in the details. I call it the three C's. Christ is coming. Christ has come. And Christ is coming again. The whole Bible centers around the coming of Christ. And as book after book of the Bible was written, the Jewish people and her scholars began to affectionately refer to the promised Messiah as the coming one. Yeah. With more and more prophecies to be fulfilled and more and more desires building up, they affectionately spoke of him as the coming one. When he comes, he'll fulfill all of this and fill our lives with that fulfillment. And so we would read in the Old Testament, thy king cometh unto thee. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The promised Messiah is the coming one. And you can go out of here and know what all the Bible is all about, wonderfully accurately, if you can just memorize and not forget three simple statements, the three C's. Christ is coming. 
Christ has come. And Christ is coming again. We read in Matthew 21.10 that when he was come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? Who's creating all of this excitement? That is a most important question. Who is this? You see, if Jesus is not the Son of God, nothing matters. But if he is, nothing else matters. And this is a most important question. Who is this? Who is this indeed? With the help of the word of God, let's try to help the Passover pilgrims answer this most important question. Who is this? Ask your father Jacob and he will tell you he is the Shiloh of the tribe of Judah. He whose right it is to rule. Ask your great lawgiver Moses and he will tell you he is the seed of the woman who championing the cause of mankind against our great enemy shall crush the serpent's head. Ask your greatest king, King David, and he will tell you he is the king of glory. Ask the evangelical prophet Isaiah and he will tell you he is Emmanuel. Wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the servant of the Lord. Ask the weeping prophet Jeremiah, and he will tell you he is the righteous branch of the Lord. Ask the statesman prophet Daniel, and he will tell you he is Messiah the Prince. Ask the greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist, And he will tell you, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Yea, the very God of the prophets himself has told you, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And yes, the very devils of hell have been constrained to confess, we know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. On no side has Jesus Christ left himself without a full and plain testimony. (laughs) Have you ever stopped to consider, asks Philip Yancey, have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus is the only person who ever lived that could plan his own birth? Now, I'm really glad that God planned Joyce's birth And uh, I'm reminded of that because today's her birthday. But have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus is the only person who ever lived who could plan his own birth? And can you hear the excitement in Philip's voice in John 145 when he finds his friend Nathaniel and says, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I believe that Matthew is the great bridge book of the Bible. Who ever thought of a tax collector writing a bestseller? (laughs) Judging from the quotations in the early church fathers, Matthew was, for its length, the most read portion of scripture in the Bible. 
It is truly a bestseller. And it was written by a tax collector. But what's more amazing, it was written by a Jewish tax collector to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews hated tax collectors. And yet God used a tax collector to point the Jewish people to the promised hope. Wow. Boy, God can take the things that are despised to bring to naught the things that are, can he? (laughs) And um, he made it the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel written. And with Matthew's emphasis that Jesus did this, or Jesus said this, or this happened to Jesus, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, that he quotes the Old Testament prophecy and shows how it looks, it's fulfilled perfectly in the life of Jesus the Messiah, something that Jewish people would really appreciate. What a perfect book to start the Old Testament, a book that shows how Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, fulfills the great prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Messiah's coming. It's like opening the New Testament with an Old Testament key. <laughs> and Matthew 1.1 is the great bridge verse of the Bible. The opening verse of the New Testament is the great bridge verse of the Bible. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When we read the name David, we go back to about 1000 BC and to King David and the Messianic Psalms and the Davidic Covenant and so much that revolves around the hope of the coming Messiah in David. When we go further back to Abraham, we think of the Abrahamic Covenant and the beginning of the Jewish race and how God was planning things out that all the families of the earth would someday be blessed through his seed. Wow. And so right in the opening of the Old Testament, New Testament, we're put back in the old, and we think of all these wonderful promises and prophecies concerning the coming one. But when we read the son of David, the son of Abraham, we are brought to the very threshold of the fulfillment of all these ancient prophecies. And we're about to read about Jesus. Dr. Henrietta C. Mears well writes, Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham. David's son, Solomon, was a king. Abraham's son, Isaac, was a sacrifice. And Matthew opens with the birth of a king and closes with the offering of a sacrifice. Indeed, the wise men offered precious gifts to the newborn king. The king offered his own precious blood for all his subjects so that they might be born again and become a kingdom of priests unto the Lord their God. What a fantastic way for the New Testament to begin and building a bridge back to the old In fact, if we compared Matthew to the first book of the Bible, it would be an interesting study. Eleven times we read in Genesis a key phrase, these are the generations of. And we begin Matthew by, these are the the generations of Jesus. The book of the generations of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Genesis, we have the beginning of human history and Hebrew history, but also the struggles with sin because of the fall. 
but we begin the New Testament with the book of the generation of Jesus, the Savior, who's come to do something about all that and uh, bring us to the new heavens and earth. Wow. I also find it's interesting, and I don't want to overmake this point because the Old Testament in its own way, Genesis has a good ending. The children of Israel in Egypt are going to multiply. Joseph speaks about how God will deliver them and uh, how they are to carry his bones back because the real hope is not in Egypt, though God blessed them there, but uh, things will get worse before they get better and they'll have to come back to the promised land. It has a good closing, and yet I think it's more than coincidental that the first book of the Old Covenant ends with a closed coffin in the land of bondage. And the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, closes with an open tomb in the land of promise. And I think that the connection is 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's also instructive to compare Matthew with the, uh, with the final book of the Bible, Excuse me, I, I, I didn't want to put it that way. I'm sorry, it's a mistake. I just caught it. Genesis. It's also good to compare the first book of the Old Testament, not only with the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, but with the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. All that God has begun in Genesis with the creation of the heaven and earth, he's going to bring to glorious conclusion in Revelation with the creation of the new heavens and earth. In Genesis, sin makes its entrance, but in Revelation, it makes its exit. And there's no more curse. And you have that splendid array of negatives in Revelation 21.4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. All that God has begun in Genesis He's going to complete in Revelation through Jesus Christ, his son. Right. And as Henrietta C. Meir says, the Bible ends like all good stories end. And so they lived happily ever after. Amen. <laughs> what two arguments are used in the book of Acts to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah? Anyone want to take a stab at that? There are a number of arguments used in the book of Acts to show that Jesus is the Messiah and Christianity is true. But what are the two arguments that are used the most? You want to guess? So I don't have to guess, I know. <laughs> One of them is the historical evidence for Christ's resurrection on the third day. And the second one, and this is to our purpose this Sunday, the second one is fulfilled messianic prophecy. How Jesus of Nazareth has fulfilled all the hundreds of amazing prophecies and types in the Old Testament and how he truly is the coming one. And uh, the writer of, of uh, Luke really uses this a lot. In other words... Fulfilled messianic prophecy, among other things, shows that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And it's so important to believe that because 1 John 5, 1 says, whosoever that believeth that Jesus is the Christ, that's another word for Messiah. 
Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament is born of God. If you, in your heart, sincerely believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, you can have 100% assurance of your salvation. The Bible says you're born again. It's so important to believe that. And this was how Paul loved to persuade Jewish audiences. Whenever Paul went into a city in the Greco-Roman Empire, he would always try to find a synagogue. We'll talk about why tonight, Lord willing. He always would try to find the synagogue, and he would try to plant the gospel in Jewish hearts, and then later, as uh, they spread the gospel through the city, more and more Gentiles could accept it too. Of course, you had the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue too, and so uh, they were very open to hearing the gospel also. And so we read, for example, in Acts 17, 1 through 3, that when Paul comes to Thessalonica in northern Greece, it says, Paul, as his manner was, he did this constantly, Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, into the synagogue, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Messiah, is Christ. Now, if we were to take and Paul, no doubt, preached in a very popular and powerful way. But if we were to take what Paul argued and put it in the form of a logical, deductive proof, his argument would sound something like this. Major premise. Your own Old Testament says that when Messiah comes, he will do this and that and this other and all these other great things. That's your major premise. That's a great major premise because the Old Testament's in the public domain. The Jews were very careful which books would go in there. They had to be prophetic and inspired. Uh, they were studied every Sabbath and read. The Jewish people knew their contents. The Jewish canon was closed around 430 BC and you couldn't add any books and you couldn't add any passages. It was great material in the public domain, constantly read, constantly studied, constantly reflected upon, and all kinds of amazing statements about the Messiah when he came. Who could fulfill all that? But there you had it. That was the major premise. Your own Old Testament said that when Messiah comes, he will do this and that and this other. Minor premise. Jesus of Nazareth did this and that and this other. He fulfilled those things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would fulfill. Now, that's a great minor premise because those who said this had eyewitness, personal, close-up front evidence that Jesus did open the eyes of the blind and he did open his mouth in parables and uh, he was crucified and he was risen on the third day and he was born in Bethlehem and all these other things that prophecy said would be true of him. They had bona fide eyewitness evidence concerning the history of his life. So that when you got a perfect match between the history and the prophecy, that's impressive. Major premise, your own Old Testament says that when Messiah comes, he will do this and that and this other. Minor premise, Jesus of Nazareth has done precisely this, that and this other. Conclusion, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament is Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, when we, and by the way, I'll just mention this. Uh, I'm a slow reader, so whatever I read, I spend a lot of time in. <laughs> and years ago, I tried to go through the classic two-volume work by Alfred Edersheim on the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, a converted Jew who was a great student of the life of Christ. And in volume two, page after page, he quotes the ancient rabbis, and he gives a list from the writings of the ancient rabbis of every verse in the Old Testament that they regarded as messianic, that they regarded as looking forward to the coming of Messiah. And he lists, and that's why we have this number here, 456. There's so much material once you get into it. And if we ask the question, how impressive is fulfilled messianic prophecy? I believe it's very impressive. Now remember what we're talking about when we speak of fulfilled messianic prophecy. We're saying that Jesus of Nazareth at his first coming fulfilled hundreds of prophecies and types in the Old Testament that pointed to a great deliverer called the Messiah. He fulfilled that. So he fulfilled the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah as given to us in the Old Testament or fulfilled messianic prophecy. He fulfilled them. And that's very impressive. Bolton David Heiser, in his excellent book, Evolution and Christian Faith, where he shows the serious problems of evolution and the importance of the Christian faith. He deals mostly with history and science in the book, but towards the back he gets a little bit into prophecy and ties it into mathematics. And uh, this is kind of neat. Bolton and David Heiser said, Suppose a false messiah, a fake, had one out of two chances of fulfilling any given prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah's coming. One out of two. Now let's stop there and say these odds are very generous to the opponents of Christianity. For example, in Micah 5.2 we read, And thou Bethlehem Ephratah, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the thousands of Judah. For out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Some 750 years before Christmas, in Micah 5.2, the burning finger of prophecy pointed to the little town of Bethlehem, in the region of Ephratah, in the hill country of Judea, in the land of Israel, in the eastern section of the Roman Empire as the future birthplace of the great king. What were the odds against the false Messiah just happening to be born in the right city? Among the thousands of cities and towns and villages and metropolises on planet Earth, much greater than one out of two. But for the sake of the analogy, David Heiser said, if a false messiah had one out of two chances of fulfilling any given prophecy in the Old Testament, at that ratio, what would the odds be of a false messiah fulfilling 92 prophecies? And he said it would be the equivalent of a blindfolded man picking out a colored bean from a mass of white beans the size of planet Earth for 93 prophecies from a mass of white beans double the size of planet Earth. You think I eat just because I like it. It's also to help me fill the pulpit. 
When you eat a lot, you can do what I'm going to say next a little better. For 94 prophecies from a mass of white beans, four times the size of planet Earth. <laughs> and for each additional prophecy you throw into the equation, the mass of white beans doubles. <laughs> According to one careful scholarly count made by one Canon Lydon some years ago, Jesus at his first coming fulfilled 332 messianic prophecies. And that doesn't count all the amazing types or picture prophecies in addition. This is impressive. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you can demonstrate, and I believe like Paul we can, if you can demonstrate that there is such a thing as fulfilled messianic prophecy, by implication, you have proven four powerhouse propositions of the Christian faith. You have proven, first of all, that a great God exists. For who but he can forecast the future? Did you hear about the Virginia weatherman who recently moved to Florida because the weather didn't agree with him? Dear friends, with all of our tremendous technology and meteorological marvels, sometimes it's hard to get the weather correct a few days out. <laughs> and yet here we have some amazing prophecies, great statements written hundreds of years ago, all coming together in Jesus. How could any man come up with that? Fulfilled messianic prophecy proves, first of all, that there exists a great God. In fact, study Isaiah 40 through 48, where God challenges the gods of Babylon to a prophecy contest. It's very interesting. <laughs> Fulfilled messianic prophecy proves that a great God exists for who but he can forecast the future. It also proves that this great God is Lord of history. For who but he can set into motion such grand designs, carry them out across the wide centuries, in the face of mounting human and demonic opposition, and bring them all to pass in due season. Thirdly, it proves that this Lord of history inspired the writers of Holy Scripture. For who but he could pour such brilliance into their spirits? And fourthly, it proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. For who but he could even begin to answer to this amazing array of ancient announcements? <laughs> he spells it differently, but it's a great name. A.T. Pearson well says, No miracle which Jesus wrought set upon him the seal of God more plainly than the convergence of thousands of lines of prophecy in him as in one blazing focal point of dazzling glory. Every sacrifice presented from the hour of Abel's altar fire down to the last Passover lamb of Passion Week, pointed as with flaming finger to Calvary's cross. Nay, all centuries moved as in solemn procession to lay their tributes upon Golgotha. 
No wonder Peter says in Acts 10, to him give all the prophets witness, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And he says earlier in chapter 3, 18 and 24, that all the prophets spoke of these times, how Messiah would suffer. And all the prophets from Samuel and those that followed after have likewise spoken of these days. Josh McDowell in his fine anthology, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, has an entire chapter on fulfilled messianic prophecy showing it as an evidence of the Christian faith. And in that chapter, Josh McDowell lists references from the Old Testament, their fulfillment in the New. He lists 29 prophecies concerning the Messiah that were all fulfilled within a 24-hour period. Imagine. And as I went through the book of Isaiah some years ago, I found 28 amazing prophecies about the Messiah and his salvation and his kingdom. And in the notes, beginning on page six, we have listed these for you. And some of them have multiple references like what Isaiah says about his millennial rule. I'd love to have you take that and read through them and study. Uh, We have a prophecy of his incarnation and we've listed the verses. For example, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, and his name should be called the mighty God. That's the great Christian doctrine of the incarnation, that God became man and dwelt among us right back in the Old Testament. Not only does the New Testament teach that, the Old does. And we need to get that across to our Jewish friends. There are predictions that he would be born in the line of David. He would be named in the womb. He would come from an obscure background when the ruling line of David was fallen and not reigning. We have what I call his Trinitarian baptism anointing, where there's a prediction of his baptism and anointing at his public ministry with all three members of the Trinity involved. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. We have his greater Galilean ministry predicted. In Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, it says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. You go over to Matthew 4, 12 through 16, and you see that this is a prediction that Jesus would focus the main part of his public ministry in the north, in Galilee. And that region that was the first to go into Assyrian captivity in 734, along with Transjordan, and great darkness descended. Someday when Messiah focuses public ministry there, Galilee will be more than compensated for all of her loss. A great light will shine, and Jesus will favor that spot more than any other on earth with his miracles and with his teaching. Wow. We read about his sinless life, his quiet and gentle approach. A bruised reed would he not break, a smoking flax would he not quench, but he'd get the job done. 
he would bring forth judgment unto truth. We read about his healing miracles, where the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. We read how he would be rejected by Israel. We read how he would be abused by his captors. I gave my back to the spiders, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. We read about the silence at his trial. We read in Isaiah 53, 4 through 8 about his substitutionary sacrifice where he would be wounded for our transgressions and for the transgressions of my people would he be stricken. We read about how he was numbered with the transgressors, made intercession for the transgressors, was buried in a rich man's tomb. We read about his victorious resurrection and glorious ascension and his high priestly ministry. Isaiah 52, 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. We read about the spread of his gospel, his universal recognition, his second coming. We read about the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah 25, 8 says, death shall be swallowed up in victory. We read about the regathering of Israel. In 27, 12, and 13, God says, I will regather scattered Israel one by one when the great trumpet is blown. We read about his millennium and we read such things as they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the beds of the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for a banner or an ensign of the people to which shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. And in mercy, says Isaiah 16, 5, shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and hasting judgment, uh, and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. We read about uh, the removal of the old heavens and earth. We read about everlasting hellfire. And we read of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. According to one Old Testament survey textbook, there are 38 references in the New Testament taken from Isaiah 53 alone. In Isaiah 40 through 66, the New Testament section of Isaiah, you've got five wonderful servant songs that give a clearer picture of Jesus than anywhere else in the Old Testament. The first four of these five songs are suffering servant songs that talk about how Messiah will suffer in accomplishing his goals. And we're told that he will be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities and pour out his soul unto death. Isaiah ushers us into the very holy of holies of Old Testament prophecy. It's as if we're standing at the very foot of the cross. It's as if the very veil of the temple itself is torn in two. A great Early Christian scholar Jerome said in this prophecy, Isaiah 53, Isaiah speaks so plainly of Christ that he seems to perform the part of an evangelist or historian rather than a prophet. Taking his stance upon the loftiest peak of messianic vision, Isaiah saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. And as you read Isaiah 53, I invite you in the words of John the Baptist to behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. When you study Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, you could say that Jesus' life was the pre-written life. 
as the Spirit of Christ, which was in the Old Testament prophets, did testify through them of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. No wonder Philip could say to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I remember reading this in Henry H. Haley some 50 years ago, his Haley's Bible Handbook, and it made me fall more in love with Messianic prophecy then, and I'm still falling in love with it. Let me close our lesson this morning with this great quote. Haley says, suppose a number of men of different countries who had never seen or in any way communicated with one another would walk into a room and each lay down a piece of carved marble. Now, there may have been some intercommunication among the prophets uh, to qualify this a little bit, but relatively little. Suppose a number of men of different countries who had never seen or in any way communicated with one another would walk into a room and each lay down a piece of carved marble. Which pieces, when fitted together, would make a perfect statue? How account for it in any other way than that some one person had drawn the specifications and had sent to each man his part? And how can this amazing composite of Jesus' life and work, put together by different writers of different centuries, ages before Jesus came, be explained on any other basis than that one superhuman mind supervised the writing. The miracle of the ages. Went a little longer than I wanted to. Thank you for bearing with me, and we'll look into a lot more tonight. Pastor?